In this week's episode, Lee Griffin becomes distraught. Lee, what's that? What's going on, Lee? I'm 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 distraught. I'm distraught. I'm pissed what are off. You distra- what are you distraught about? Well, no. Well, first, I mean, you guys are. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess Scott Boris finds a Cessna 150 on Facebook with a motorcycle engine in it. I saw a 150 for sale on Facebook that uh-huh. had a 1500 Goldwing, a Honda Goldwing engine in it. And yours truly finally, finally points out to Lee how inexperienced he actually is compared to Scott and I. This is one thing we may have experience with that Lee doesn't. Have you ever brought a plane in on like a pitch black grass strip that has no runway lights in the dead of night, Lee? FAR 91.205 Powered Civil Aircraft with Standard Category U.S. Airworthiness Certificate Instrument and Equipment Requirements. This is basically the um, the breakdown of what instruments are required for different types of flight. We'll jump right into it. Part A, general, except as provided in paragraphs C3 and E of this section, no person may operate a powered civil aircraft with a standard category U.S. airworthiness certificate in any operation described in paragraphs B through F of this section, unless that aircraft contains the instruments and equipment specified in these paragraphs or FAA-approved equivalents for the type of operation. And those instruments and items of equipment are in operable conditions. Um, first section is B, visual flight rules day. For VFR flight during the day, the following instruments and equipment are required. One, an airspeed indicator. Two, an altimeter. Three, magnetic direction indicator. Four, tachometer for each engine. Oil pressure gauge for each engine using pressure system. Temperature gauge for each liquid-cooled engine oil temperature gauge for each air-cooled engine, manifold pressure gauge for each altitude engine, fuel gauge indicating the quality or quality quantity of fuel in each tank, uh, 10 landing gear position indicator if the aircraft has a retractable landing gear. Any collision lights. Yep. Uh, 11, for small civil airplanes certified after March 11th, 1996 in accordance with part 23 of this chapter an approved aviation red or aviation white anti-collision light system in the event of failure of any light of the anti-collision light system operation of the aircraft may continue to a location where repairs or replacements can be made and before we get too much further we'll cut it off there at 11 um, and start to um, go back obviously airspeed indicator it's pretty straightforward this is what's coming off of your pitot tube your altimeter uh, operable condition the altimeter needs inspection during your your annual correct does it no every 24 no. calendar months no. okay yeah that's optional too that's, yeah right like the transponder right. check yeah all optional. i'm pretty sure that's optional that <laughs> That's, that's not, not accurate. That's not no. actually optional. I, oh, that has to. Be. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you guys. I always do mine. I always get mine checked every twenty-four calendar months. Is, I'm just saying. I know some other people who thought that it was optional. Is the altimeter so the same category as the transponder check? It doesn't get done. I believe so. It doesn't get done unless you make sure it gets done during your biannual inspections. Or your annual inspections, I should say. Yeah, your your annual. Yeah, that you're. They're not going to do it at the annual unless you ask them to. Yeah, and you have to have special equipment to do it. So yeah, so this never gets done, even though it's supposed to get done. No. I uh, my, well, my, I'd say never. My guess would very. My guess would be there is a lot of GA aircraft out there flying around that are not up to date on that requirement. But I mean, yeah, that's probably true because a lot of people, hey, I know a guy who will sign this annual off, blah, blah, blah. But I bet there are plenty of shops. There are plenty of conservative enough pilots out there who have pride in their aircraft and want to do things right. They're oh, probably yeah, doing I, mean, right. I do. I, I am, of course. I'm just- oh, I know you have pride in your equipment. I know that's a fact. Mm-hmm. That's right. Duct tape's never been yeah. used to fix that airplane. I can tell you that much. No. Nope. Just, <laughs> nope. Top of the line. 
Off of the line. Everything. But I, so, I mean, if you think if you go to like a certain OCD, you know, um, mechanic who's going to sign off an annual, they might go back and look and see if you got it done. And they might, I don't know what grounds they may have as a mechanic, but they may be able to like say, hey, I'm not going to sign this off or I'm not going to do this unless you get this or whatever. I don't know what so grounds you have they to have. have. The, you have to have the uh, altimeter check, even if you're not flying in. Controlled airspace? What if you're just flying around in class G? It says visual flight rules day. Yeah, I, I, that's, what, that's what it sounds like. Because the transponder, you don't have to have a transponder check unless you're going into what airspace? Controlled? Yeah. Some, what control, level of control? Yeah, controlled air. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, that, that was another one I learned in a past episode that, that is not as prevalently done as I once thought. Magnetic direction indicator. That's the compass, right? Yeah. That's a compass. Lee, what's that? what's going on, Lee? I'm 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 distraught. I'm distraught. I'm pissed. What are off. you distra- what are you distraught about? Well no, well first I mean you guys are I mean, yeah, I mean I guess this is where show prep is supposed to come in, but I know we're winging what's, it. So the altimeter transponder check or the pedostatic check is separate. And I believe that is also a controlled airspace thing. You're okay. you're talking about here where this this is only talking about the equipment requirements. This isn't talking about when the transponder check is supposed to be done. No, I know. I just thought they did them at the same time. Yeah, I was just throwing that in there. Well, well yeah, but but then at the end, it kind of sounded like you wrapped it up saying you had you well, yeah, you have to do both of them, and everybody does do both of them. But that one was for controlled airspace and one wasn't. Yeah, I don't think that's. Well, that's I don't how know. It sounded like. Is that, is that not accurate? Well, I don't know. I need time to look it up before we move on to magnetic compass. Well, okay. you're, so you're supposed to be the expert. Be I'm asking you. Well, I'm the well, idiot that's asking the questions, and you're. The, yeah, but you're I can't look idiot. it up fast enough because you keep giving me questions. I can't answer the questions <laughs> you ask while looking up the last question. Lee, you're supposed to just know whatever immediately. Are we, I, are know, leaving, I know a lot. Are we leaving this picture. part in? Sure. What? Who cares? I'm. I look like a fucking idiot. <laughs> well, we're gonna have to bleep. Don't that leave out. that part in. Don't leave that part in. We gotta. We gotta edit out the F. The F. I, the I you're making more work for Rob here. Moving on. Gotta download a beeping noise. But I, yeah, we do. But and and I do want to before we go on um, past. Yeah, before we leave after 11, I do want to, there is a, a way that I, I mean, I do want to tidy up all this huge, all the all these things, you know, we're naming a bunch of billion things that most, I mean, you got to boil it down. You're going for a check ride and you're asked, what are the basic VFR instruments or whatever? There's an easy, There's an easy way. There's an acronym isn't it? Which we'll, well, well, there are acronyms. We'll but, yeah, but the acronyms don't really... I mean, that's hugely long, and you got to think of. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I want to look up this altimeter transponder check. You can, I mean, go ahead. Whatever. Right, just pause. I can cut it out. Okay. This section somewhere. Okay. Oh, I'm so pissed off. <laughs> Whatever, Lee. You're supposed to know this stuff. All right. So I have the answer here. All right. Hit it. So, um, uh, in part 91, so I'm back to the altimeter, you know, that's one of the required, uh, instruments, obviously it's good to know how high you are. Right. So, um, there is an inspection required altimeter system and altitude reporting equipment tests and inspections. It's a 91.411. Um, and that's a, no person may operate in an airplane or helicopter in controlled airspace under IFR unless within the preceding 24 calendar months, they've had the. Um, static system checked. So that would be different than so, the transponder. The transponder requirement is controlled airspace. This is controlled airspace under IFR. Okay. So you don't, you, yeah. if you're to fly in VFR, like in Scott's case, you, you wouldn't have yeah. to get the altimeter checked. No. Okay. Doesn't no. appear so. You said you, you said you did it anyway, though. So you, yeah, yeah. You've been spending yeah, that money. Now, you didn't even need to. Like yeah, I feel like I've been wasting time and money when I didn't even need to. Yeah, what a that's dumbass. A, right. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm have to well, stop doing that. That'll save me some cash. Yep. Saving money. Well, if you look at it that way, I mean, it's, that savings is going to pay for the transponder check. 
that you're already doing that yeah. I'm already so, doing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You always do that. That's, that's great. That's good news. Then uh, the magnetic yeah. magnetic direction indicator. That is, is that the compass or is that the um, yes. heading indicator? Because those that's two are comp- different. That is the compass. That's magnetic. It's magnetic. So directional, yeah. Your directional gyro is not magnetic, right? Correct. Oh, got it. And that is not on the list, actually, even though most airplanes have them. No. Yeah, which yeah, yeah which we'll talk about. Tachometer is that, for each. I, oh, go ahead. Well, I believe the magnetic compass is less likely to fail than the directional gyro. Is that why that's required? I mean, well, you got to think when these were written, 1930s. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't so updated this one in have, a while. I don't think. Well, I mean, when well, when you go on and you start talking about IFR, all the good stuff is in there. But uh, in that, that'll talk about your heading indicator and stuff. But um, you got to think of a J3 Cub, which is what I was going to bring up at the end. What what do you need to have in a J3 Cub? And that's basically your your minimum stuff. Yeah. So we can come back to that. Yes. Number four is a tachometer for each engine. It's basically uh, another word for that is RPM indicator. Most people are familiar with that because it's in their car as well. Uh, obviously, for each engine, it's single engines, most of the time you just have one. If there's two, you need one for each engine. Oil pressure gauge for each engine using a or using pressure system. Uh, six is temperature gauge for each liquid-cooled engine. You delve into that a little bit. Um, so liquid-cooled, that'd be like radiators out front. Cool running. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you think like like a P fifty one. You know, that's a liquid cooled engine. Yeah. yeah, there's not a lot of GA aircraft with liquid cooled engines, though. Is there? Well, I mean, with the light sports stuff, there is because those nine twelve. Yeah, are, that's are true. Partially. Yeah, those are almost like exclusive. and pipers and stuff. None of those. Those are all air cooled mm-hmm. or oil cooled. Yeah. yeah, this would be. You'd have to go out. Yeah, kind of in a yeah. something special to to find. I'm sure a lot of experimentals using you know. Uh, a Subaru engine or something yeah. like that. There's experimentals using Subaru engines. Oh yeah. Well, there's dude. There's experimentals using, and, and you know anything. Hmm. I, I guess uh, I, I just heard about I, somebody. Um, go ahead. I saw. I wasn't uh, talking or anything. So. Oh what? no! <laughs> go ahead, please. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, sometimes the timing's a little off here. Whatever. Yeah. Well. Um. Oh, see, I lost all, it. No, um, the Yamaha R1. Too long. Uh, yeah, oh, right, right. They put, they put an R1 engine in stuff. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're uh, just the gearbox is limiting it to like the engine only turns like eight grand. Yeah. So that's not uh, on those. That's not really that bad. You know, when you got a fifteen thousand no. RPM redline. Right. But they're you know they put out a gob of horsepower, no torque. So I don't know what it would depend on what prop you're putting on it to make it actually work out for you. Yeah. Which somebody went and figured out, but you have it geared right. I saw a 150 for sale on Facebook that Uh had a 1500 Goldwing, a Honda Goldwing engine in it. What? Yeah. I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how that would even work. I don't know if it would have enough power, but I guess it would. I don't know. You'd have to run higher RPMs, but I wonder how many how many horsepower is one of those. On a gold, well, one, roughly two hundred. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. No, I don't think they're that much. One forty. No, I, I mean, those aren't a sport bike. Maybe one forty, one fifty. I don't know. Here, let me, let me look it up. Fourteen hundred cc's. Fifteen hundred. Well, I, I mean, so the bottom line is, you have you know, like an R one that that probably does make hundred eighty yeah. horsepower. Oh yeah, and but you're gonna have to run a. Oh, it says it's a hundred horsepower, so I guess that's the same as a yeah. So if you go take, but it's a hundred horsepower at fifty two hundred RPMs. Which one? So which you're one? gonna have to run a lot which higher one? RPMs. Like the, the Goldwing. It's it's a hundred horsepower. The fifteen hundred Goldwing. It's a hundred horsepower. What RPM? Five thousand two hundred. Fifty two hundred. Yeah. So you let the engine turn fifty two hundred. Is that the right. red line? No, I don't know what red line is. Red line's probably. Oh, I'm sure I, I looked that up too. Why? <laughs> All it needs to make is a 150 came with 100 horsepower to begin with. So all we're just doing is making 100 horsepower at 5,200 RPM versus 2,800, 2,700 RPM. Now, when you're saying R1, are you talking yeah. about the bike? Yeah. 
Yeah, Yamaha yeah, R one thousand CC crouch rocket engine. Yeah, crouch rocket engine or some snow. Don't the, don't the phasers or some version of the uh, metros? The, uh, Apex. Look, actually, the snowmobile I have has the are obviously the gearbox is different, but uh, yeah, the rest of the engines oh, are probably about a lot. the same thing. Yeah, but the uh, snowmobiles are yeah, direct they it, drive. They put it in snowmobiles. Yeah, yeah. So I mean. Obviously, it's a robust engine. You know, obviously, flying is right. a very specialized, you know, thing. But you know, you, you you're running a fraction of your RPM, yeah, in the airplane, yeah. and you're still making well, very good power. Yeah, and the and the, the the big thing is is the engine doesn't weigh anything. Well, and it's a lot cheaper too. So, well, that's true why, too. You know, if you, like the. Goldwing engines, we sell those all the time for like a few hundred bucks, you know. So, so you're running a higher RPMs. You're obviously you're, you don't maybe not going to get the hours that you would out of a O200 out of it. But if you have to throw the thing away every few hundred hours and put a new one on, it's not very expensive to do. You don't have the That's anywhere near the reliability. Point. You got single yeah. magneto. It's got none of the the normal normal. Oh yeah, no, but stuff. it's experimental, so they can get away with that stuff. People are throwing that kind of stuff out of the window anyways. If you start looking at, you know, yeah. you get into this, um, like the Cub Crafters, I don't want to name drop and slam anybody, but like their um, Carbon Cub, and I don't know what they're doing right now, but I know when they first came out, that was a true, a purely electric ignition. There was no magneto. It was not engine driven. Okay. So when, when the battery died, like if the alternator took a dump, you're running off the battery. Hmm. So, I mean, there's, I'm sure they had some other safeguards and they still had two, I believe, two independent systems, but it's just interesting. But I mean, it doesn't fail in your car that much. I mean, like I just said, the, no. we know that the aviation is specific, but I just, I just feel like that the cost is I feel like that make me uncomfortable having hokey stuff like that going on the plane. Well, look at every ultralight out there. Yeah, that's hokey yeah. central. I mean, the the best one. Who knows? You know what all kind of safeguards they put in there, and those don't have any glide ratio. Yeah, most of them. Do. I'm sure there's exceptions, but yeah, for the most part. Yeah, yeah, right, right, dropping right. like rocks. I mean, so we got off on liquid cooled engine, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's that is the probably anything with an, with a uh, the nine twelve and the light sports and man from like a bigger. Um, uh, P fifty one. I can't think of anything else that's even mainstream that's liquid cooled, other than a P fifty one. I don't know of anything. Yeah, it's mo- that's not really mainstream either. <laughs> it's mainly air cooled, right? Well, which is number seven. If it's air cooled, you got to have oil temperature gauge uh, for each air cooled engine. And then uh, eight is manifold pressure gauge for each altitude engine. What is an altitude engine? What do they mean by that? Just naturally aspirated. I mean, okay. Ours, I know, but even if it's turbocharged or supercharged, it's still a manifold pressure gauge. I don't really know why. Manifold pressure gauge for each altitude engine. I believe my 150 did not have a manifold pressure gauge. Why would it seems like that's required? Why would uh, am I missing something here? This says an, an altitude engine means a reciprocating a reciprocating aircraft engine having a rated takeoff power that is producible from sea level to an established higher altitude. Okay, first of all, so doesn't that cover like everything? We, we've run into this problem past episodes, Scott. Where, who, which dictionary is this? Is this is this a dauntless dot dot uh, trio dot? No, R-U? this is a. Uh, Cornell Law. Yeah, they got a lot. Yeah, Cornell Law. Yeah. Um, it's uh it's literally it's it's a it was a link in there, you know, I'm I'm reading along this reg here and it it altitude engine was clickable and that was the definition that popped up when I clicked on it. It's not a, it's not some guy with a blog in Bangladesh. Is uh, it's Cornell Cornell Law, that's their right. aviation. Okay, so I section. guess could you could we get that reread then? Again, let's let's think about that. Altitude engine means a reciprocating. God, it's hard to say that word. Reciprocating, whatever. You reciprocating aircraft engine having a rated takeoff power that is producible from sea level to an established higher altitude. Wasn't so that any 
engine that's meant to. Man, that sure sounds like every engine. So yeah. where are we getting off the rails here? So manifold. The only time manifold I've ever pressure. seen manifold pressure gauge is if it's a a controllable pitch prop. Speed. Yeah, yeah. Fix, fixed pitch. I've never seen one in a fixed pitch. Wow, this is this is going to need some hardcore editing, but this is incredible. I mean, I've never l- looked up what the what the thing is, but I never I never looked up what altitude engine was. But what I am upset that I have missed all these years is most airplanes don't have manifold pressure gauge, and this is definitely making it sound like you would need it. Yeah. Why do you need to have? I'm looking it up. Yeah, there's got to be another. Need, um, why do you need to have manifold pressure gauge if you're if you have a fixed pitch fixed pitch prop? Well, I mean, it can still tell you an awful lot. Yeah, but there, I've never seen one. Try pace. You ever seen them? Really? Yep. Hmm. Uh, I've never flown anything that has one in it that wasn't constant speed. Yeah, I'm obviously, you know, like when you look at the when you look at all the other ones that are similar to this, okay, temperature gauge for each liquid cooled engine. So there is a qualifying statement at the end of when you would need the temperature gauge, oil temperature gauge, if it's an air cooled engine. But then it goes manifold pressure gauge for each altitude engine. And I and I'm starting to think, though, because like like, let's say in a fixed pitch, like an archer. That is not going to make rated power on takeoff because it's not going to make rated RPM on takeoff. So, you know, with the and definition of altitude engine, that is producible from sea level to an established higher altitude. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. And it's talking about the engine. The engine produces yeah. or. There's a there's got to be a caveat. Yeah, so it's, no, it can be no, it can be fixed pitch. Listen, it can be fixed pitch, but in that case, it would be it can be constant speed, which means you need it. But if it's fixed pitch and it's supercharged or turbocharged, then it would also need it. I don't have much time in turbocharged. Do they all have manifold? Yeah, well, but probably all you, constant speed though. How many? Constant how many? Though. Yeah, how many turbocharged aircraft True, are not constant yeah. speed? Probably not very many. Man, if any, I mean, it's some experimental somewhere. Yeah, I don't, I don't know of any. It might be. Oh, because the way uh, this is written, it sounds like it has to be in every airplane. Right, which is which. I think the qualifier being altitude engine makes it sound like it's got to be constant speed. If you want to make rated power on takeoff, it's got to be constant speed or turbocharged. I see. That's the only way that you're going to make takeoff power. At sea level to begin with. At sea level. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Kind of. Just seems kind of strange the way they put it. They could have been a little more clear about that. Well, who the hell? We all had to... I didn't even look it up, but we none of yeah. us knew an altitude engine. We were kind of on the right path, right. but we didn't yeah. know exactly Well, you just think they would, they would clarify that a little more, but whatever. Yeah, it's terribly, I, just, I just always know it's... Worded. If it's yeah. fixed pitch, you don't have the manifold, and if it's not fixed pitch... Then you have a you have a manifold right. pressure. That's what gauge, I always thought. That's how you yeah. you use that almost kind of like your RPM, which you get trained in your complex endorsement. Complex endorsement. Yeah, com- they yeah, try see if I will train um, you on uh, how to basically use a manifold pressure gauge and, and controllable pitch propeller. Yeah, and we may we may cover that at some later date here too because that's those are those are always fun co- topics conversation like do's and don'ts and old wives tales and all kinds of yeah. stuff come up when you start talking about that. Like talking about what kind of oil do you put in your car? I mean, everybody's got a different, a yep. different answer on how to do stuff. But what I would say though, I mean, I'm sure you're going to say it here, Rob, but if somebody knows something and has experience and knows exactly what this is talking about and call we're wrong, us on it. Oh, yeah. we're Send right. Us let us know. Yeah. Uh, nine is fuel gauge indicating the quantity of fuel in each tank. It's pretty straightforward. Each fuel tank you have, you need a gauge in the plane. Tells you how full the fuel is. Ten landing gear position indicator. If the aircraft has a retractable landing gear, this is pretty straightforward. Um, typically, three lights 
They're all green. It's down and locked. And then what? It's been so long since I've flown one. When they're all up, are they all red? The moment they're not, all three of them locked. Normally, they're not illuminated. Okay. If tip, I mean, typically most airplanes are like what's in the um, dark, dark cockpit. You know, ideology, yeah. dark cockpit concept. So if you're in the normal, normal flight state, everything should be dark or not illuminated. Yeah. So with yeah, with the gear position indicators, if they're up and you're in flight, it should be dark. Is typically the, the okay. thought. I just feel like I've seen them that are red. Some something I flew in transit, they can be red. Okay, in transit or gear unsafe, depending on who, who you know what you're talking about. So once they're all up stored in flight configuration, it's dark. If they're yep, if the, it, all the in between is just red. Yep, and then exactly. Once, once they're down and locked, it's it's green, all three yep. green. You got it. That's that makes sense. Number eleven is uh, basically every airplane certified after March eleventh, nineteen ninety six, uh, needs anti collision light system on it. Which is these are the strobes basically, or beacon. Beacon. They put the they could put or the f- beacon. Okay, that's why they say aviation yeah, anti collision light strobe force. lights, right? Yeah, you, you gotta go get by with the beacon. Yeah, yeah. I didn't all know I got. That. I well, yeah. Well, yours is certified before March eleventh, nineteen ninety six. Oh yeah, yeah. But this just says aviation red or white anti collision light system. It doesn't say strobes. I just always assumed anti collision was the strobes, but that was an assumption, I guess. But I guess so. I don't have well, to have any lights. Right. That would be that would be one of the sources, one of the anti collision sources. Gotcha. So I don't have to have lights. What do you mean? If I'm because I was certified before 1996. If your airplane was originally certified with the um, if the uh, type certificate data sheet specifies that so you, need to, it, with... you need to have it, okay, you're just ahead of the curve. Yeah, and you've always needed it at night. So, well, yeah, of course. I just, in the day, I didn't know. I guess. Well, I guess you don't really need it during the day, right? No, but if you, it, I mean, it should be on. Yeah, I leave if, my beacon. If you on. have it and it works, it should be on, and that's what this says. If there's, you know, any issue, you can get by without it as long as you're en route to a place where repairs can be made. So, Lee, you said you had a. I leave s- my beacon on. Yeah, yeah, as you should. That's how so when you walk away from the plane, you know if you accidentally left the left something on, you'll right. see it flashing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one thing. I, I would prefer that people did that with the nav lights versus the beacon. Well, strobes. now I have to leave my nav lights on. The ADSB. ADSB. Yeah. Wait, what? Which you should have anyways. My nav light. That, that's, yeah, go ahead. Well, you should anyway, but my nav light is wired into my... Uh, my ADSB is wired into my nav lights. Mm-hmm. The ADSB light... The ADSB transmitter replaced my nav light. Right. Right. The switch for the nav lights, I mean, just wire it on. Why would you yeah. ever turn them off? Yeah, they're not well, typically required during the day. I get that. But that was a really good like memory aid you just brought up, Rob. You know, just you know, leave them on, leave the strobes or beacon on so the if you leave the battery on on an accident, you know, you have something reminding you when you turn around and look at the plane. But it's just it's not really good technique. To have the beacon on, if the I just wouldn't want you don't know where somebody's going to go with their rating. You know, if somebody's like learning as a private pilot to do it this way, then when they go fly a King Air or whatever they eventually fly, that's just kind of a bad technique that you you don't really want to start them with that. You don't you don't leave the beacon on when you're flying bigger stuff like that. No, when the engine shut down, one of that's one of the. Uh, you know, so you know, if you're in, in um, like let's say the 150 or so, um, bring your you know throttle to idle, mixture to cut off, parking brake on. The very next thing should be beacon off. Everything that I have flown, you know, bigger that is pretty much I mean, obviously there's no prop, 
but you know, bring the thrust levers to cut off, parking brake on, or you can mix the orders of those up. But the very next step after the engine is basically secured is beacon off. Yeah, it, it was on my belts. checklist for the 150 as well. I just, I just usually ignored it. I think. Yeah, well, checklists I wouldn't recommend ignoring them. If it's so long that you want to ignore it, you should shorten it and not ignore it. Yeah. You know, checklist wise. Checklist, checklists in a 150 are super long, Lee. Nobody pretty, has time for that. Complicated. Operator. Well, I'm just saying you don't want to start bad habits. Oh, that ship has sailed. No, I still got my checklist. I got my I got my little checklist taped to the uh to the visor. I can flip <laughs> it down. Scott, Scott and I bad habits ship. That's that's been it's been long ago yeah. out of port. Well, I know you guys are beyond repair, <laughs> but there's a lot of people listening that right. uh, we we're not really it, we're we're not going to be airline pilots anytime soon. So I well I but, feel like I'm better than than most actually. Um, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not bad. I I I do my checks. I follow um, it religiously I, every checklist needed until. Basically, take off. Once I've taken off, then I've. It's yeah. I don't use a check for landing. Depends on what plane I'm flying. Yeah. Well, if you're if you're in a plane that has like gear and stuff, yeah, I would, yeah. If it's retractable landing gear, I always but make sure. You in, a, in a Cessna 150, there's not a whole lot of checklists to go through for landing. Right. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. No. Yeah. I agree. I agree with you. I. It's just kind of a bad habit. I mean, you either know how to land the plane or you don't. <laughs> well, yeah. But what if you've, you know, you're you're coming into land and you were up cruising at a reasonable cruise altitude. You had the mixture lean back, and then you go do a go around because you never brought the mixture full forward. Well, I just leave the Who mixture. Who flies that time, high? So. Well, yeah. What but, do I care? <laughs> oh, I would lean it at two thousand feet I'd myself. I think I'd lean the one fifty out. Well, you you lean it on takeoff before. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll lean on takeoff. You get a, you get yeah, a I little can, bit more RPM out of it though. Hell yeah! What do you think they do yeah. in Denver? You think they take off full yeah. bridge in Denver? Yeah, wait, no. If, if they, they don't, why there. do I have to? Yeah, I think the altitude. If I'm getting an increase in RPM, does it matter? Yeah. Because remember how what you're predicating it on is the fact that the carburetor is adjusted correctly. But my uh, pilot handbook for the 150 says that for takeoff, mixture rich. I believe. I'm sure. Oh, out. I don't have. I don't have one here, but I bet there's something. I'll have I to leave that. I there. have. It's in the. It's in my glove box of the plane. I have to look at it. But I think. I think it says mixture rich. I'm not sure. I, it just, that just wouldn't work on a 90 degree day in Denver. It just that just no. Would not oh work. no. Yeah. No. Deleted. And I don't like tribal knowledge. I don't like tribal knowledge. Like, yeah, back then, I don't live in since the manual said one thing, the instructors are always saying, "Well, no, know, yeah, I know." Judge. Yeah. It also says for uh, soft field. I think uh, maybe if it's short field flaps up, which I find you get off the ground faster with a little bit of flap in. Yeah, I so, don't. I don't. I, I, I don't know. imagine. Yeah, we'd have to have it in front of us to really, I guess. Or like the forty degrees of flap for takeoff. Yeah, done that a couple of times. Oh yeah, full flap for takeoff. Good times, Lee. Good times. It's right off the ground. At the old uh, grass strip here in the spring and springtime, you there's only about a, there's only a little section of the runway that you can actually use. So sometimes you got to use full flap. Anyway, Lee, get you over the, the first eleven. Calls. You'd you'd express you wanted to to sum that up before I moved on to to twelve. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and and it was really there's an acronym that doesn't really I mean doesn't really help me. I didn't learn it, and of course one of the principles of learning is primacy. The thing you learn first is is what you learn the best. And I didn't learn this initially, so it never got beat into me. So yeah, I could probably practice it a lot and maybe get it now. But I know one of the acronyms out there is tomato flames. So if you were to write out tomato flames, it would basically be some kind of type of memory aid to a process of elimination for basically hitting all the various things you would need um, uh, for a nighttime or IFR flight. So it's very all-encompassing. And of course, if you need it for IFR, um, if you need it for VFR, you need it for IFR. It's not necessarily the other way around. If you need it for IFR, you don't necessarily need it for VFR flying. So when you're going and sitting down in front of an examiner for a um, 
for a check ride. And I've sat through a lot of them. I think almost all of my students, maybe except for two, did I sat through their oral if the student was okay with it. And they all were, except for the two that I just physically wasn't present for. But the question always comes up, what are the basic VFR instruments? And yeah, you can, you know, you go to a 141 school, you know, with an approved syllabus, the tomato flames is probably what they're teaching you because it covers all the bases. But really, if you just go back to the roots and you're thinking, yeah, and I know not everybody's flying a J3 Cub, but if you go back to the roots and you think about what, what do you need? And I always separated it into aircraft control and engine condition. Those are the two, and that really makes it super simple. So the three things I need for, for aircraft control, how fast am I going, how high am I, and what direction am I pointed? That solves all, all of those, all those, all the parameters you need to know yeah. for a day VFR flight. How, how fast am I? How high am I? What direction am I pointed? That's going to help you with fuel planning. That's a, so you know your ground speed. You know That gives you everything you need to know. To, to kind of conduct the flight and then engine condition. So that's oil pressure, oil temperature, tachometer and fuel level indicator. That's it done. So uh, similar, like knowing what the state of the aircraft. Now we need to know the state of the engine. How hot is it running? How fast is it running? How much oil pressure and how long will it run for? And that's basically, I'm, I'm alluding to the, to the gas. How much yep. gas do I have? So it's super simple, and that's everything in a J3 Cub. So if you just think of the bare minimum, yeah, yeah, you need a, a manifold pressure gauge for this altitude engine we just talked about, but nobody knows what the hell an altitude engine is, and I guess now we do, but hell, we're not 100% sure, thanks to the FAA. Um, and then uh, a temperature gauge if it's a liquid-cooled. Nobody's flying a liquid-cooled engine, really, you know, so like we've talked about. So yeah, just think, just boil it down. Think about the bare minimum. Don't think about these, you know, uh, often left field airplanes. You know that it's a fixed pitch prop, but it's got a retractable gear. So I need this. That's not what an examiner cares about. They want you to know the basic instruments, which are going to tell you I'm high enough, I'm, fa I'm how fast I'm going, and what direction I'm going, and then engine condition, which is again oil pressure, oil temperature tachometer and fuel level indicator it's like seven instruments there's like seven letters so in tomato, tomato by flames, itself is that for the vfr yeah. stuff or the ifr stuff i believe that is like night vfr which is basically the same stuff as as ifr and then the ifr required instrument do you know what uh, each one stands for or should i put it in the show notes i'd put it in the show notes um i mean i can rattle them off um uh um altimeter tachometer Oil pressure. So whatever. Oh, we'll put it in the pressure. show notes. Yeah, why, yeah, why don't you do I, I never learned tomato flames either. I've heard of it, but... I've never heard of it. When we were taught, when Scott and I were taught, we just, there was no monikers. It was just like, this is what you need to know. Well, yeah, but now, I mean, they're just in the in the 141. It's so scripted and everything, and they want to just kind of, I don't want to say crank them out, but they want it to be a sure, they want you to have the surefire answer, and you go, there's going to be enough stuff that that is tough to put into an acronym they want to give you as much as they can with acronyms yeah you know no i get it. i just never it's just like this is the gauge well, yeah. just remember it like there's oh, no it's, diff it's different now for sure yeah everything's acronyms everything's acronyms and 12 if the aircraft is operated for higher over water and beyond power off gliding distance from shore approved flotation gear readily available to each occupant and unless the aircraft is operating under part 121 of this subchapter at least one pyrotechnic signaling device uh, as used in this section shore means that area of land adjacent to the water which is above the high water mark and excludes land areas which are in, uh, intermittently underwater uh, so basically for higher means you're making money. Uh, so this for this doesn't apply legally if uh, if you're just flying for fun, but it's probably a good rule to still go by anyway, uh, is is what I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And then basically you have to calculate how high you are, what your glide is, that's stuff you should know. 
to make sure you can get to land so you don't you're not ditching out in the sea basically mhm uh, keep in mind your headwinds yep ploof approved flotation gear uh that's typically uh, i would assume that's the, in the US the US coast guard approved flotation gear is probably what the FAA would consider approved flotation flotation gear as well uh, would be my assumption. They're, they're life fast. They're more the experts than the FA on that kind of stuff. And then pyrotechnic signaling so, device. That's just like flares and stuff. Something to shoot up when, to get signal somebody for rescue. When do you have to have flotation device? When do you have to? Yeah. You're beyond beyond power off gliding distance from shore. Mm. So if you can glide there in an event of engine failure, you don't need it. Well, I better put a life jacket in my plane. No, it's only for hire. Oh, for hire. Okay. Yep. Yeah. This. I mean, that means it's a good idea for you to have too. I, oh yeah. I, I always had life jackets in the back when I was flying over to Kelly's. Nah, I never did. Nah, you didn't when you flew my plane over there. I I know. <laughs> I've I've flown. I've grabbed a couple a couple times. I remember when I was flying your plane over there because I knew you didn't have them in there. Oh. But oh, if oh, you fly oh. high enough, what five, six thousand feet? If you had to, you would be. You'd yeah, be, you'd never but, be beyond. But I'd, we'd always fly over there. Like no, but, who bothers to climb up that high for that short of a flight from our place to the island? No, you, okay. So okay, this is a really great point. Everybody, nobody wants to climb. So nobody's got time for that. Why? Lee. Yeah, we don't have time for that, Lee. Oh my. God. <laughs> It takes forever to climb up. Because, well, yeah, but like we've talked about before, honestly, when we've done that flight, above, 150 as to soon 150. As above the tree, honestly, as soon as you're above the tree line, there's really no reason to climb any higher. <laughs> Unless there's towers or something. Unless there's an engine failure. Well, yeah, towers and stuff. How many? Uh, we've hundreds of hours of flight experience. The engine's never failed. Like. No, it only yeah. takes once, man. It only takes once. I Actually, I think that's kind of a conspiracy theory because I've flown a lot and it's never happened. So it probably means it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, well, I just rather, you know. I think so the government get- just put stuff out there about these engine failures <laughs> and plane crashes to scare people. The Republicans did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They put they're it just out. Trying to, they're just using scare tactics. <laughs> so, okay. So, like going on a, you know, so from. Uh, shoreline to shoreline going to Kelly's, I think is probably like maybe three miles. Yeah, if you go straight over. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about who follows the shoreline and then cuts over. I just go straight out and cut over the lake and go right there. Well, I, I go I go like, you know, 50, 100 feet, go out, look for boats for a little bit, and then cut over. So, yeah, that's even worse. Yeah, stay safe. 50 feet above yeah, the water. Well, it's, it's only as you're 500 from persons or property. Yeah. Why, why are you at 50 feet then? If it's Well, let's not be ridiculously. Yeah, that does seem a little bit, does seem a little <laughs> bit high. <laughs> I'm trying right now to uh, um, measure. What's, what's the glide ratio of 150, Scott? I forget. I have no I idea. I think Scott knows. I knew at one point me? when I had one. I, it does glide. So that's that's good enough. I don't I don't know. Doesn't glide very good with four degrees of flaps, and that's what I remember. No. All right. Straight line distance from your place, Scott, to Kelly's Island is twelve point eight miles. Yeah. Straight line. Sounds about right. No, it's exactly right. What do you mean? It sounds about right. I'm measuring it. Whatever. So. So. All right, so from Marblehead, you know, the the nearest point of land to the airport is four and a half miles, okay? All right, so I would imagine, and I don't know this for sure, you guys can correct me if you think I'm off my rocker, I would imagine that the glide ratio on the 150 clean, um, so no flaps, is, is probably around 12 to 1. Yeah. Probably. I don't really know. Decent. I I, I, I don't rem- I don't remember, but it was I remember it being okay. Like it wasn't like a super good, but it wasn't terrible either compared to other. So, stuff. 
help me do some math. What I'm trying to build here in this scenario for our power off gliding distance from shore is if we're at the midway point, how high do we need to be to go? Let's assume it's 12 to 1. So that's 6. Your center point would be 6. That'd be airport to airport. Well, no, the center point would be 1.5, would be 2.25 miles. Oh, that's the, if you, that's you if have you to leave go, off Marblehead. Oh, that's oh, okay. That's where, okay, yeah. Nobody yeah. does nobody's got time to hug the shoreline going over there. You know what? I'm about to make you feel well, I won't, but I'm gonna make you I'm gonna try my best to make you feel bad. Seven point five. See, let's call it tw- let's call um, it twelve miles, twelve glide ratio twelve to one. Keep the math easy. It is two miles further. To follow the shoreline. Two miles. Yeah. It's one minute. That's one minute on your flight. And there's somewhere I bet I could save you that one minute as well. And this, uh, so everybody, this is the difference between these two and me. It's two miles, one minute or less. And that's something we could probably reclaim. If they were to do it their way and I were to do it my way, we'd probably land at the same time. They would, I would probably have to like, I'd be so close to beating them. If I didn't beat them getting there, that I would have to consciously be like, okay, it's going to be so close. I might as well slow down so they can get in first. That's how close it would be. You think so? And actually, or I would just go higher and go straight and probably still and definitely beat you then. From going up higher. So you can take your pick. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, why not? Well, so I want to get back to you. So. So six miles is the halfway point for a semi-decent okay. round number. Six miles. So you got to glide six miles, and you have a 12 to 1 ratio. So that means you're going to go 12 feet forward for every one foot you drop. So we can multiply that by... 12 miles. No. If you're a mile up, you can get 12 miles, right? Yes. Yeah, so that would be the way to think about it. So you'd, a half mile will get you six. Yeah, which is, well, yeah, that that's 100%, which is 3,000 feet. AGL is what you'd have to do to glide the six. Yeah. But so that depends on your ground speed. Obviously, it's all predicated yeah. on ground speed. Head Headwinds yeah. will factor that. Oh, yeah. But so, if, if, if you're at 5,000 feet and all you need to glide is five miles and you have a 12 to one, you have to have a pretty kick in headwind. In that case, you just turn around, wouldn't you? Yeah, and that's that's exactly use, the point. That use I the would tailwind. Use the tailwind because you know if you're that close, Cedar Point is going to be a much better alternative. Cedar Point Beach is going to be a much better alternative yeah. than trying to get to, to Kelly's. But I know when Glenn and I, when we would go, we would still parallel Cedar Point Beach, but we'd go to Kelly's at 4,500. 4,500? Uh, yeah. I've gone to Kelly countless times i uh-huh. uh, maybe i got up to two two thousand five hundred it was probably I mean, the highest I've ever done yeah I, go over I don't think i even bothered to climb that high well no i, do, I normally do it at just thousand maybe. feet agl is what i typically yeah. run over there with yeah. life jackets in the back and yeah i don't know if that's the smartest move but what I'd always Depending do. On what time of year you're doing it? You know, if the water temperature is 70 degrees, it's not a big deal. But if you're doing the middle of winter, that light yeah, jacket doesn't go- help you any. Yeah, I was going over in the summertime. Well, and always- of course, that's all considerations that you have to. It saves you a lot of time, probably not climbing up. Which I, yeah. you know, I agree with you in that in that uh, context. But you know, like when we're going to Peely from Port Clinton, we go 4,500 feet. And you're over water a lot less on that flight than you are going from Scotts to Kelly's. Do thirty five hundred because you got you going got, up forty five hundred. You got the whole, you got the whole island chain. You could land at on your way there, basically. Yeah, right, exactly. And I still go at thirty five going up forty five hundred coming back, and coming back you, instead of climbing out because when you're climbing out of Port Clinton, you're climbing out over land. So I don't worry about that, right? And so I get to 3,500. I'm typically there basically just coming across the uh, tip of Catawba Point. But coming back, I circle the island, gain gain at least 3,000 feet circling the island, and then come across straight. 
and keep climbing to 4,500. This would be KPCW if you want to punch this in four flight as a listener to understand what we're talking about. South Bass Islands, Lake Erie, out to Pelee. Yeah. You punch in uh, KPCW, that's going to put you on Port Clinton and you'll kind of be in the general area. Mm -hmm. Because most people probably don't know, haven't never flown the Lake Erie Islands before. Yeah, probably don't know they exist. Yeah. Yeah. Which we we would want to change. This is like a Lake Erie Island flying awareness show. Oh, yeah. We talk about it basically every episode. Yes. What, there's What's some the really good, I mean, there's a lot, these islands offer shtick. a lot, and these airports are really cool because it's all short field stuff. The The longest one out yeah. here is, uh, well, Pelee, which is what I was just talking about. It's a Canadian island. Uh, it's 3,300 feet long. That's the longest one. The shortest one is 1,500 feet. Yeah. If you, uh, you're in the general, this area of the country, well, I'm down in Florida right now, but up up west end of Lake Erie. Be sure to fly the Lake Erie Islands. Good time. That's basically where we learned how to fly. Well, some of us uh, learned. Yeah, we didn't really right. learn. <laughs> the defined <laughs> learned. <laughs> it's right next to altitude engine. The definition is right next to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very, very confusing. Vague. 13. An approved safety belt with an approved metal-to-metal latching device or other approved restraint system for each occupant two years of age or older. So this one I didn't know. If you're under two, you don't even need a safety belt? Correct. Basically, they don't care about babies. That's it. Those Republicans are hit again. legislation that endangers people. This must have been written by... Was this written by Trump? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that's... So if you look at um, advisory circulars on weight and balance stuff, um, which I've looked at a lot for um, an infant under the age of two years old, that is actually factored into the weight of the average, the average weights for adults. So a lap child is what this is called. Um, you know, an airline talk, that's a lap child and, or laps, whatever a lap child. Lap, that, yeah. Lap child. Well, that's what it's, that's, well, that is actually, that's exactly what it's called. It's a lap child. But okay, I've never heard the term. Um, I heard a lap dog. Lap dog. I've never heard a lap dog. Yeah, that's a lap dog is a small dog. Little, those shouldn't, little, those shouldn't exist. Little, but little tiny dog that sits on your lap. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So if the anyways, kids under two, they are factored into the average weight of adults on these airplanes. Because in, in the airlines, you're able to do weight and balance very, very quickly. You're talking about a lot of people, complex airplane. You can do it really, really quickly. And that's because we use standard average passenger weights. And in those weights, which change summer, uh, season, uh, summer to winter or seasonal changes, these kids under two are factored in, which is really weird. Wait, wait go into it changes by season? The average weight of yeah, the Yeah, because they expect you to be wearing heavier clothing. It changes by six pounds season to okay. season. Oh, they thought everything. Man, that's tense. Yeah. Oh yeah. I want to. I want to say is like one ninety. Because there's a difference between what the FAA says the standard average passenger weight is, and what the aircraft manufacturer says what the standard average passenger weight is. So, in lieu of any manufacturer data, use the FAA data. But we always used the um, manufacturer data in the aircraft that I flew. But for an operator, like a 135 operator in like a Gulfstream or something, they'd be able to use the FAA stuff probably. But yeah, lap children are factored in, which is interesting. Lap children. And they don't need a seatbelt. T-shirt idea brewing for that term. Number 14. For small civil airplanes manufactured after July 18th, 1978, an approved shoulder harness or restraint system for each front seat. For small civil airplanes manufactured after December 12th, 1986, an approved shoulder harness or restraint system for all seats. Shoulder harnesses installed at flight crew stations must permit the flight crew member when seated and with the safety belt and shoulder harness fastened to perform all functions necessary for flight operations. Uh, For purposes of this paragraph, there's a couple, there's uh, 
the date of manufacture of an airplane is the date of inspection. Acceptance records reflect that the airplane is complete and meets the FAA-approved type design data, and a front seat is a seat located at the flight crew member station or any seat located alongside such a seat. Uh, this is basically the shoulder harnesses. Like, if you go in the modern, like, the difference between, like, Scott and I's plane. Did you, does yours have them, Scott? No, I just have lap belts. The sh- yours doesn't even have a shoulder harness. Nope. Nope. Okay. Mine was, because c- what year it was yours? 68. Because I had a 76, and it yeah, had them. I, but we, um, we always use them during check rides. Um, <laughs> so this didn't use them regularly, just in check rides. We always use them, Scott, during check rides. Yeah, I mean that is one of the biggest safety improvements ever. For the shoulder harnesses, you get in a wreck. Oh yeah, you get in a wreck with just a lap belt, dude. Oh, yeah, I think about it with the with the cub all the time, and that thing would crash slow. Yeah. That's definitely a good idea. Have a damn push a talk button stuck in your forehead. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, your head's hitting the dash. Yeah, the shoulder harness. Yeah, you want that for takeoff landing and at the very least. It's basically if if they if the plane has it, you're supposed to use it though anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, absolutely. Because you can you can have them put on after. Like basically, like Scott could have them installed in this plane if he wanted to, and then it's very like wow. almost all Super Cubs didn't come with them. But it's very—I mean, it's one of the number one mods, like for Super Cubs that install shoulder harnesses. Yeah, and then but once they're installed, then you have to use them, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. So then it becomes a legal requirement. Fifteen an emergency locator transmitter if required by ninety one point two oh seven, which we did not look up. Ninety one two oh seven. Yeah, that's going to tell you you basically need it all the time unless you're doing like flights within like, um, uh, what do I want to say like certification test flights within like fifty nautical miles of the original point of departure. Everything basically needs an emergency locator transmitter. Okay. And those those are on the new frequency then too, the the new ones, right? Well, the new ones are, yeah, yeah, but that's not requirement. Just the the um, one twenty one five is no longer listened to by satellites anymore. Gotcha. Everything's over the new four oh six megahertz. Makes sense. Sixteen. They that's re- why it's important. Yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, that's why it's important. If you're still flying GA and you got a standby comm or you have nothing else to listen to, monitor guard frequency, which is 121.5, and listen for ELTs yeah. because the satellites are no longer listening. Help help somebody who's still on an old 121.5 ELT get found sooner. Is that com- by us? Is that common know? like advice? Because the first time I ever heard it was you talking about it on the show, but I I had never heard. To, to monitor that frequency. Yeah, all commercial operators on our standby are number two uh, com. If we're not listening to something else, we have 121.5 in. Okay. Listening. So just d- turn down low in the background. Yep. And 16 is reserved for future improvements. Uh, 17 is helicopters, um, which we know less about than even airplanes. You can believe that or not. Visual, visual flight rules at <laughs> night. For VFR flight at night, the following instruments and equipment are required. Instruments and equipment specified in paragraph B of this section, which is everything we just went over. Um, so it's kind of a coverall. Anything you have to have during the day, you also have to have at night. Um, and then there's additional stuff. Approved position lights. That's your your red and green lights out on your wingtips. Uh Red tail light on the tail, right? Yeah. White. It's white on the tail? White. And it, and it doesn't need to be on the tail. It just needs to be rearward or visible only well, from the yeah, rear. Because yeah, if it was the, red on the tail... The you, beacon then you, is red. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, that beacon makes... Beacon is red, but you're... Well, the beacon could be white as well. Strobes are white. Really? I've never... I thought the beacon had to be red. Strobes white? Stro- the yeah, strobes, I, I thought strobes the beacon are, had to be red. 
No, the be- well, the beacon can be red and white. The beacon could be it doesn't matter. It's an aviation red or white anti collision light source. Okay. The, look at look at most King Airs. Their beacons are white. It's weird. Huh. That's weird. It's always so high up in the tail. I never I didn't know that. Never noticed. Well, there's one on the belly too. Wow. Anyways, yeah, beacons are typically red. I would not have one that wasn't red, and strobes are typically white. I'm just saying, aviation red or white anti collision light source. Get with it, Scott. Yeah, whatever. You know. <laughs> and then uh, I follow th- all the rules and regs perfectly. And then number number three is uh, just a bunch of stuff about anti-collision stuff with a bunch of dates and everything. Um, AV must be aviation red or aviation white, right? Uh, what basically what yeah. Lee said. Uh, number four: If the aircraft is operated for higher one electric landing light. So, landing lights actually are not required unless you are for hire, which I find. Oh, they specify electric landing light. What other kind of power are you going to use? That's candle power, man. Yeah. Tiki torches. That's a good and shit. point. Scott. What else? What else are you going to use to light it? Well, I mean, I, I maybe there's some photoluminescent yeah. or some like bioluminescent thing. Is oddly specific. Maybe I never. Like yeah. Trijicon night sights. The only thing I can think gun. of is like way back in the day, somebody using like a like a gas powered light or something. Like the Amish use gas lights. It's very odd. Yeah, they have big barns that have Seems like, like a fire hazard. Yeah, it probably is. But the, you know, you go to Amish country, like they've had an auction. Michael went to at a barn. Like the whole thing was lit. It was lit up like you know, just like a regular building, but it was lit by gas lights because they don't. Use electricity. Hmm. I wonder if that was something they they told you it was gas lights or LEDs, man. What's that? And speaking nothing. Speaking of tiki torches, Scott and I bought a bunch of tiki torches one time to see if we could use them as landing lights to get back it worked, in. Worked great until the wind blew them out. It didn't work great at all. It was, looked yeah, awesome. That's what I heard. Scott. It, it didn't work great at it all. It worked awesome when you're on the ground, but as soon as you got a hundred feet off the ground and looked down, you couldn't see them anymore, really, because they're so no, dim. I remember we saw them, but I thought the wind blew them out. No, well, the wind was blowing them out too. That was another issue. But the moment yeah. you got up, the moment you were at well, an altitude where they would actually be helpful to find the runway, yeah, you, you couldn't see they them weren't anymore. They were invisible. From the air as they were from the ground, but they were better than those uh, old LED, uh, not LED, but uh, solar lights we had solar. there. You know that yeah, sol- that was back. That was back before solar was. Solar lights were, you know, decent. We just yeah, got those like they're like landscaping for solar. Yeah, yeah, we got some landscaping solar lights and stuck them out there and. They look great on the ground, but you you know you couldn't see them from the air. That's just yeah. It's been one miserable failure after another to try to light that runway. Yeah, I <laughs> every time you honestly the best thing is just the guess and check method. You don't need lights. Yeah, the, the best thing is just to know how to get in there right. without well guess and check lights. You know about where the runway is, so you shine your landing light down. Yeah, I came down one night and it was I saw Wendy from the Wendy's sign yeah. by the highway, well, then, and then so I immediately went did a go around. You checked she, and you checked and it was she, wrong, so you went around and you guessed and checked again. You know, and you guess and check until you get it right. It's a very simple concept. <laughs> well, they, they teach you that in math class. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you learn in like, like this. This math. is one thing. This is one thing we may have experience with that Lee doesn't. Have you ever brought a plane in on like a pitch black grass strip that has no runway lights in the dead of night, Lee? I have not. Oh, you okay. But most people haven't. Like, but I have landed a no landing light airplane at night. But I had runway lights, 40 watt runway lights. You allowed to do that, that too. I just I just forgot that. Is that even legal? On. No landing light. Not required. What were you? Unless oh, a cub, fire. I guess. Well, yeah, it was yeah, it was somebody else's super cub, but it didn't yeah. have a landing light. Yeah. Oh, and I've I've found out the landing lights are burned out on airplanes. 
Yeah. You know, coming back like in the pre-flight, which of course I did, the landing light was working. And then when I came back, cause I used it, you know, in the interim, did it you, burned out by the time I brought it back. Did you do the pre-flight Lee? That seems like, uh, a, the, seems like an issue that had you done a thorough pre-flight, you would have yeah. seen and known about no, that before. It was, it was definitely working during the pre-flight that I, the very thorough pre-flight that I did. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're just making sure you're not overlooking stuff like that. I'm a rule follower, okay. gentlemen. All right. I've uh, never broken a rig. A five, an adequate source of electrical energy for all installed electrical and radio equipment, which is basically for most people as an alternator, I would assume. Yeah. Uh, six, one spare set of fuses or three spare fuses of each kind required that are accessible to the pilot in flight. I feel like this one is forgotten. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never heard of that one before. <laughs> like, th- that's, okay, this is, before I read this, I thought this was just, like, a good rule of thumb. I didn't realize this was actually a legal requirement. You know, I might yeah. have a little box of spare fuses in my glove box, now that I think of it. No, you have, like, a little holder on the inside of the glove box. Oh, really? The, they, the door, yeah, have, it should have the fuses right in the door. I've literally might, never, actually. I've never broken this regulation, but I didn't know it was a regulation. If that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. Because you want to be able to swap out fuses when stuff goes at night. It's more critical at night than during the day. Yeah, to be able to get stuff back up and running. As you can see, we went long in that episode, longer than we thought we would. So we are just keeping that at the VFR portion of the reg. If you would like us to do another episode on the IFR portion of the requirements, we will do so if we receive one email prior to episode 25 being published. If you would like to us three to redo this episode with more vigor and less sobriety, we will redo this one if we receive 10 emails prior to episode 25 coming out uh as always thank you very much for listening emails addresses are f-a-r-a-i-m at robertberger.com b-e-r-g-e-r the german way not the sandwich way lee griffing is f-a-r-a-i-m at lee griffing.com g-r-i-f-f-i-n-g and scott is f-a-r-a-i-m at scottboris.com, B-O-R-E-S. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, take care.